Um, all right, so uh, as you may have guessed, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're in the middle of a series in 2 Timothy. And we've said that 2 Timothy is one of the most intimate, it's one of the most personable of all Paul's letters because he's writing it to a young disciple who he's poured into. Really, it's like a son to him, and Paul is like a father to Timothy. And three things are happening uh, that prompted the writing of this letter that are important. First, Timothy is a pastor at a church in Ephesus, and this church is taking this young man's lunch money. I mean, they are telling him what to say, what not to say. Uh, they're telling him how to lead, how not to lead, and so as a result, he's becoming timid in his leadership, and Paul is saying, look, don't be timid Timothy. The second thing that's happening is that Nero, the emperor of Rome, is ratcheting up the pressure and the persecution of Christians all over the Roman Empire. And Ephesus is a Roman city. And so that means that right there in the city where Timothy is pastoring, Christians are being persecuted. So there, you know, there's concern, there's fear, what's going to happen, you know? And then finally, Paul, when he wrote this letter, is a prisoner at Rome, and he's facing a death sentence. In fact, we know that Paul is going to be beheaded. That's how he's going to die. So he's going to die, and Timothy knows it, and Paul knows it. In fact, Timothy was probably there when Paul was arrested. In verse 3 of chapter 1, Timothy talks, Paul talks about remembering. He longs to see Timothy and he remembers his tears. These were probably the tears that were shed in light of Paul's arrest and, uh, and moving on to Rome. And so today, Paul is just speaking into this difficult situation that Timothy's in. He doesn't want Timothy to give in. He doesn't want Timothy to give up. And listen, he doesn't, I don't know what you're facing, but I know this. He doesn't want you to give in either. He doesn't want you to give up either. And so today, Paul is going to tell us this, this overarching thing. He's just going to say, look, when you encounter hardship, you need to, before you do anything else, pursue Jesus. In other words, keep a passion for Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus even for a moment. And he's going to tell us to do this in one of three ways. He's going to say, well, look, I want you to remember Jesus. And we'll talk about what that looks like. And then he says, and then I want you to draw from Jesus. I want you to draw from his resources. And then thirdly, he's going to say, him, look, and then you need to trust Jesus. You can, you can have a confidence in him uh, because it's all about Jesus. And so let me just ask you before we dig in, how hard are you chasing Jesus these days? I mean, in our culture, it's so easy, isn't it, to be tempted to chase so many other things, to pursue so many other things other than Jesus. But Paul's going to speak into Timothy and he's going to say, Timothy, your ministry is about a person. The Christian life is not about information. It's not a philosophy. It's not about dogma. At its center is a man, a person. And so he begins this way, Timothy, I want you to remember Jesus Christ. Now, that word remember actually means to keep in mind. So to turn it over again and again in your mind. He's saying, 
hey, I don't want you to just reflect on Jesus. I want you to rehearse Jesus. It's in the present active. I want you to keep on rehearsing Jesus. I want you to keep him at the front and center of all you do. But he doesn't just say Jesus. He goes on and he uses the term Christ. Now, this is from a Greek word that means the anointed one or the Messiah of the Old Testament. So he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you aren't just serving any religious leader or some religious leader. You are serving Jesus, who is the anointed one, the God of the universe, the predicted Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then he goes on to say that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. Two implications here, I think. The first one is this. He's reminding Timothy, Timothy, I want you to remember Jesus' power. He's risen to prove it. Jesus is alive, Timothy. And if Jesus is risen, then there is nothing he can't do because he alone conquered death. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, when you speak of Jesus, you're not just telling stories of antiquity. You're talking about a man who is here and present and alive. See, Jesus is all-powerful. And if Jesus is risen, then there's nothing he can't do. Um, And this means that because he is all-powerful, you and I, friends, are never impotent or powerless in the face of adversity. And then he goes on to say this, this uh, Jesus Christ, you know, whom I preach. In other words, Timothy, you've heard me talk about this over and over and over again. Keep that faith. He's saying, what faith? The faith that I've preached related to the gospel of Jesus. Now, this word gospel just means good news. And here's the good news of Jesus. He died. He was buried and he was resurrected, the tomb is empty, for, to bring new life and to bring forgiveness of sin. That's the gospel. It's that simple. Christ was died, he was buried, he was resurrected to bring new life and for the forgiveness of sin. Friends, that message has to stay at the heart of not just this church, but of Any church, it and it alone, must remain at the center of our faith. In fact, here's what Paul says about this in verse 9. He says, I'm suffering for this gospel. I am bound in chains for this gospel. I'm going to die for this gospel. See, Paul. I mean, what's so amazing to me is Paul was even willing to lay down his life so that this gospel might come to other people. Um, But listen, let me just say this. In the West, I think, at least in America, we kind of have a version of Christianity where we think, well, okay, Christianity is like, okay, it's all about like Brad 2.0, right? Just being a better version of me. But listen, Jesus didn't die, and and sometimes we'll say this, well, I just want a God who accepts me as I am. And while it's true that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God does accept us just as we are, the reality is, friends, he loves us way too much to let us stay that way. The reality is that he didn't die just so you could keep being you. He died for who and what you would become because of his victory over death and the resurrection. 
And so here's what I need us to pick up here. Sometimes standing up for Christ will cost you something. For Paul, it cost him imprisonment, it cost him chains, and it even cost him his life. And aren't, you, aren't we fortunate that we live in a country where speaking the gospel is not going to cost us our life? But I need to ask, are you willing for it to cost you something? And if you're not, you better ask yourself why you're not. So I want to tease out why it's so important that we be a church, that, that churches keep the gospel at the very, very center of their faith, why it matters so much. So many of you have probably heard of Penn and Teller. Penn is a widely known atheist. He's very outspoken about this. And I was talking with Ace Woodson, who's actually teaching our evangelism class here at the church. And he was telling me about this clip of Penn sharing about an encounter as an atheist that he had with a Christian. And so I'm actually going to play that for you. And then we're going to Come back up and we'll talk about some of the implications of this. So check out your screen. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. I mean, he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? 
How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, liked your show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address. So what I love about this dialogue, first you notice he kept going back to how nice this guy was, how genuine this guy was, how this guy kept looking him in the eyes, right? So that's just the first thing, right? As Christians, you know, those are the kinds of people that we're called to be. But the question that haunted me that he asked, is he remember the question? He said, how much do you have to hate somebody? I mean, if you really believe there's a heaven and a hell, if you really believe that Jesus came to rescue people from hell and send them to heaven, like how much do you have to hate somebody not to share that with them? I mean, I love that even an atheist sees that to share my faith with someone is not to judge them, it's to love them. This is the power of the gospel. Um, so, and then Paul goes on to say, look, and even though I'm bound for the sake of the gospel, the word of God, it is not bound. The word of God is not bound. No one can spread the stop or the impact of God's word. Listen, this is why two things just relate to this. Every Sunday that you come to church, you should come expecting God to work in your life. Do you know why? Because we're opening the Word of God. We're teaching the Word of God. And the Word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the only offensive weapon that we as Christians have is the word of God. So you should expect to be challenged and expect to be changed because while Paul may be bound, I can be bound. The word of God just can't be. Listen, what that means is that God's word will always accomplish the purpose that God set out for it. In other words, if I speak it, God is going to work in that moment and do whatever it is he wants to do in somebody else's heart, mind, and life as a result of the word. So important. So I want to remember Jesus. I want to keep him front and center as I pursue him. But the second thing that I want to do is I want to draw upon Jesus. I want to draw from his resources. So here's the way Paul said it. He said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may get saved. In other words, he's saying these people, this group, whoever they are, the elect, they need to hear about Jesus so that they can be saved. So the question is, right, the honest question is, well, what does that mean? Who are the elect? Now, uh, in, our, in, our, in the West, when we're taught theology, we're kind of taught, there's two main theological views, and really only two. There's Arminianism on one side, and there's Calvinism on the other. And when a, when a good Calvinist and a good Arminian see this word, elect, it causes them to understand it in a very specific way, which I think doesn't do justice to the Scripture. So, uh, so let's kind of tease out who this group of people are that aren't saved 
They need to get saved, but they're still called the elect. Well, the Old Testament said it was Israel. Look at this, Isaiah 45, 4. I call you by your name for, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my, there's the word right there, chosen one. Now the CSB translates that word elect into what it means, which is chosen. But if you look at many other verses, they'll just say my elect ones. So uh, the Old Testament says it was Israel. Jesus said it was Israel. Look at Luke 18, 7. Will not God grant justice? He's saying this to Jews in a Jewish context to his elect or the nation of Israel, the, the nation he's chosen, who cry out to him day and night. Will he delay in helping them? And then finally, Paul said elsewhere that it was Israel. Look at this, Romans chapter 11. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies. In other words, they don't believe the gospel, so they're enemies of the gospel. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. So Paul is saying that as a nation, Israel has been chosen. They are the elect of God. The elect are Jews. And he's saying, look, I'm enduring this so that my Jewish brothers and sisters might be saved. In fact, he says as much in Romans chapter 10. Here's the verse. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, Jews or Israel, is for their salvation. And I want you to notice the context here, which also fits that he's talking about Israel here. He says that Jesus is from the house of David. He's tracing the Jewish line. He's tracing the line of Israel. And then I also want you to notice that he also throws in the word in this verse, they also need to be saved. Also, very important. So he's been talking about the Gentiles need to be saved. Now he's saying, look, but my Jewish brethren, they also need to be saved. So everything I do, I do with them in mind. And then Paul quotes from what is probably a, a reading that they would do at baptismal services in the early church. And so he quotes this, and here's what he says This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now he's saying to Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, you can have confidence in Jesus. You can trust him. You, you keep your eye on him. You draw from his strength because salvation only comes through him. So you draw from that. But then you can trust him, Timothy. You can have confidence in him. Now, when he makes this statement, there are four contrasts he makes here. There are two negative and two positive. And, uh, and, he, and again, I mentioned he's probably quoting from a baptismal uh, booklet that they used in the time. And here's what he says. He says, if we die with him, here's the first contrast, we will also live with him. Now listen, this is part of our identification with Christ. 
Romans chapter 6 tells us that baptism paints a picture of being united with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So that when we're coming up out of the water, we're coming up to new life, which is being given and offered by Jesus. So this is about our identification with him. And then in verse 12, he says this, if we endure... In other words, if we remain under the pressure, if we stay with it in the face of adversity, if we stand strong and we we don't run, that we will one day reign with Jesus. In other words, suffering always leads to glorification. It always does. In other words, God always takes our biggest hurts and he makes those hurts our ministry. In other words, he equips us to be able to turn around and take the hurt that we've worked through and the healing that we've received and offer that to someone else who suffered in the very same way that we have. In other words, he's saying, look, suffering is one day going to give way to the unending reign of God. In fact, what he's intimating is that the suffering you're going through, whatever the hardship is in your life right now, that's preparing you for that rain. It's glorifying you. It's making you more like Jesus. And then he goes on with the two negatives, although one of them is still kind of a positive. He says, look, if we deny him, he will also deny us. This speaks to the possibility of actually walking away from Jesus. And here's the question that I think we need to wrestle with. Is it possible for someone who believes in Jesus today to quit believing in Jesus tomorrow? So several years ago, there was a pastor, went to Bible college, uh, went to a mega church, pastored a mega church, uh, caved in under the pressure of the weight of all that responsibility, and he said, I'm done, I'm out. I, don't, I no longer believe the Bible is true. I no longer believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm out. So I think what Jesus, what Paul is saying here, look, that's a real possibility And if you believe in Jesus today and you quit believing in Jesus tomorrow, that's a big deal. So stay close all along. Rehearse Jesus. Draw from Jesus. Trust Jesus. Don't pull back. Don't pull away. See? Because it is possible, you know, to change your belief. And I want you to notice something that's so important here. See, because some of us in this room... I mean, we're here this morning, and and we know a lot of stories about Jesus. We have some content in our minds about Jesus. But there's a big difference between knowing information about Jesus and knowing Jesus. And so I would ask you, where are you, you know, in that spectrum? And then he says the last negative, which is really a comfort. And honestly, it's a treasure. Because he says, well, if we want to believe but we're faithless, like we just can't muster it up on our own. We want to be true to Jesus, but we're just finding it hard. He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So the focus here is on the unchanging nature of Jesus, right? That my lack of faith does not dictate God's faithfulness. God is still faithfulness even God is still faithful even when I lack 
faith. In fact, he's really saying that God will always be faithful, even when we are not always faithful. And he says that God will do this because he can't deny himself. What's up with that? Well, when you and I become followers of Jesus, we become part of the body of Christ. And so he's saying, look, when you become a part of the body of Christ, Christ can't say, hey, you know, I don't need you. You're not part of my body. You are. You're part of his body. So he's saying, look, he, he won't even deny himself, you know. So what he's saying really is, Timothy, I want you to run hard and I want you to run fast with your eyes fixed on Jesus. I want you to give yourself completely to Jesus and I want you to see what he will do in your one and only life. Now, listen, I'm going to springboard out of this passage and talk to you about something I think is vital to know. If you're going to be a follower, a pursuer, a person who stays passionate about Jesus. So if you want to understand Jesus, if you want to know him, if you, if you want to follow him, you have to understand that Jesus was a rabbi. Fourteen times in the New Testament he is referred to as rabbi and 40 times as a teacher. And they really essentially mean the same thing. A rabbi was somebody who had students or pupils or disciples. And you need to know that not anybody could walk around and call themselves a rabbi. It was a profession. It had standards and accountability. And only the best of the best and the brightest of the best could go on to become a rabbi. And for a young boy growing up in Israel... To be a rabbi was the greatest thing that you could imagine. I mean, it was the greatest thing that could happen to you. And the reason it was the greatest thing that could happen to you, because the rabbis were the ones who taught Torah. Now, that word Torah can be specifically applied to the first five books of the Old Testament, but can also be used more generally of the Old Testament as a whole. And rabbis were the ones that taught that. And Torah is what distinguished Israel as a nation from all of the other nations around them. Because they had God's word, they had God's promises, and nobody else did, and that made them unique. In fact, there's an ancient saying that the rabbis used to say back in the day of Jesus. They would say this, under the age of six, we do not receive a pupil. From six upwards, accept that student and stuff him with Torah like an ox, I love that. Stuffing, just keep stuffing it in there. Just keep stuffing Torah in there. Uh, because Torah represented this nation's relationship with a holy God, right? So at around the age of six, there were three levels to a Jewish education system in the day of Jesus. The first one started at age six. It was called Bet Sefer, which means house of the book. And the book was Torah. So, um, so every day, all day, six-year-olds would gather and they would read from Torah, they would recite Torah, they would memorize Torah, they would be asked questions of Torah, and this would go on day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And you need to remember why this was so important. See, back then you didn't get your own copies. There were no such thing as printing presses. There was no, like the, in, in that day, the Gideons hadn't gone on before and put a Bible in every hotel room, 
right? That wasn't an option. If you wanted the word of God, you had to carry it around with you. You had to hide it in your heart. So kids would do that just day after day, week after week. But there would be some really bright students who just excelled at this, maybe in the top 1% of all the students. And they'd be accepted to go on to the next level. And so at the age of 10, they would go to what was called Bet Talmud, which was the house of learning. And that would last until they were about 14 years old. And in this stage of learning, their rabbis or their teachers would ask them questions of understanding. So you see Jesus do that. Somebody will come to Jesus, they'll call him a rabbi, and he'll do what rabbis do. Okay, so, so this, you know, do you understand this? Did you see this? Like just questions. That's called a remez. That's a disciple rabbi thing. And so by the age of 14, this is incredible. The best of Bet Talmud would have the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi absolutely memorized. I mean, it's just incredible. In fact, Ray Vanderlaan, who came out with most of this research in the late 1980s, actually went to rabbinical school, and he said in the late 80s, he, there, were tw- there were 23 students, and he was the only one in the class who didn't have the whole Old Testament memorized, Genesis to Malachi. So every rabbi in Jesus' day had the entire uh, Old Testament memorized, and so Here's something else you need to know. Rabbis never recruited. It was beneath their dignity. What the best rabbis did is they took applications. Like they didn't come to you. You had to apply to them. And so the rabbi, when a student would apply and a student would come, the rabbi would ask a bunch, he would ask a bunch of questions, just put them through the 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 paces, right? Do they know Torah? Do they have it memorized? Are they able to interpret it rightly? Do they know what the different rabbis have said about different passages over the different centuries? And if the kid was good enough, the rabbi would say, yes, I accept your application. I want you to come and follow me because you have what it takes to be my disciple. But that was only you know, less than 1% of the time. Most of the time, the rabbi would say no. And so then the disciple would go home, they would get married, they would raise a family, they would love God, and they would hope that maybe one day one of their children might grow up to be the disciple of a famous rabbi. I mean, look, being accepted into the school of your favorite rabbi was a lot like graduating from Harvard or Yale or from Indiana University, which is just as good as Yale, right? And, you know, so you would leave everything for that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And the goal of going to your favorite rabbi was not just to get information from him. The goal was to become like him. The goal was to be able to do the things that he could do, say the things that he could say. Well, rabbis never recruited, that is, until Jesus. Jesus was willing to set aside his dignity. Jesus didn't accept applications 
And remember, only the best of the best of the best would get accepted into a rabbi school. So Jesus, he goes to James and John, and what does he see them doing? What are they doing when Jesus calls? Anybody know? Yeah, they're fishing. Why are they fishing? Because at some point, they washed out of school. At some point, probably when they were 10 years old, some rabbi sent them home and said, go home, work with your parents, build the family business. You don't have what it takes to be a rabbi. You don't have what it takes. So then Jesus comes along, and, uh, and this is probably, you know, they probably washed out when they're 10. They're probably between 14 and 18 in this moment. They're working with their dad. They're fishermen. And they washed out at some point because they weren't smart enough. They weren't spiritual enough. They did not make the cup and so, or the cut. And all these guys had, driven, had given up on that dream to know Torah, to teach Torah, to be a Talmudim. They had lost that dream a long time ago. But now a rabbi comes along, and it's not just any rabbi. It's a rabbi who's famous. It's a rabbi with power. It's a rabbi with healing in his wings. It's a rabbi who, when he talks about this God, he calls Papa or Daddy. No rabbi had ever talked about God like that before. This rabbi comes along, and to these young men who've already been rejected by other rabbis, already washed out, and he says, you, I want you to follow me because I believe that you have what it takes to be my disciple. I'll tell you a little bit about what this is like. Just kind of a modern day example of this. For many years, there was a guy by the name of Ned Coletti, strong Christian. He was a vice president with the San Francisco Giants. So one of his primary jobs was to go out and recruit baseball talent of you know young kids that they thought could make it in the in the in the major leagues and so every year he would go down to the Dominican Republic to scout young players there were a lot of young major leaguers that that have come from the Dominican Republic and here's what he writes about these players he says most of the players have one parent Most have never met their earthly father. They have no Abba on this planet watching out for them. Most have never been educated past the fifth grade. They live in poverty. They exist in obscurity. There was one player in particular who our coaching staff told me had great tools but was timid because he didn't want to fail. I asked one of our coaches to help me communicate to him in Spanish, and I told the kid, he was 16 years old, I told him that failure is a part of baseball. I told him that God had blessed him with a special talent. I told him that God had blessed him with a special touch that was perfect for him and was not meant for anyone else. And I told him that he needed to develop that talent. I told him that I believed he had what it take to make it in the major leagues. He looked up at me with tears in his eyes. A few days later, as I was saying my goodbyes to the staff on this makeshift baseball field in the middle of nowhere, 
this kid stayed and waited. And as, and as I was finished with the staff, he came and we shook hands. I spoke no Spanish. He spoke no English. But I said to him through this interpreter, I will be back here next year. I will be back here year after year after year. Keep practicing. Keep getting better. You have what it takes to get into the major leagues. And then he left. All right, I want you to imagine. You're this kid. You're the 16-year-old kid. You live in the Dominican Republic. You've got no father. You've got no money. You've got no education. You've got no prospects. And you're just destined not only to live a life of poverty, but a life of obscurity. Nobody's ever going to hear your name. And then one day, the vice president of the San Francisco Giants comes along and looks you in the eye and says to you, hey, I think you've got what it takes to make it in the big leagues. I want you to come and follow me. How long would you hesitate? Like, I can't imagine there's anybody in the room that would say, oh, no thanks. You know, I've got it pretty good here in the Dominicas. You know. No, you... What would you do? You would drop everything. You would go with him to America in a New York minute. Have you ever read the Gospels when Jesus is calling these men? And it's almost like they're Stepford disciples. You know what a Stepford disciple is? Like a robot. Like remember the Stepford wives? These were wives who learned. They were robots programmed never to talk back to their husbands. You know, to always do what their husbands asked. And the only reason that worked was because they were robots. Well, it kind of feels like when you pick up the Gospels and Jesus says, hey, come and follow me, and they just immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus like, yes, we would, you know, but that's not the deal at all. Here's the deal. Here was a famous rabbi who was looking at these young kids and saying, I believe you have what it takes to be like me. To do the things that I can do. They knew, friends, they knew that the call to discipleship from Jesus was the winning lottery ticket. They knew they were never going to get another opportunity. They recognized this and saw this as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because they'd already washed out a discipleship school a long, long time ago. Now listen, you may be here this morning and maybe you don't believe, or maybe you're trying, you're working to believe in Jesus. Listen to me. The reality is Jesus believes in you in the same way that he believed in those disciples. And this is why Jesus would say things to them that we don't understand. Like, hey, remember, it was me who chose you. You didn't choose me. I went to you and said, will you be my disciple? Why did he say that? Because rabbis never did that. And Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. So here's my point. If you're here this morning and you've never embraced Jesus as your teacher, you're not going to be able to trust him for eternal life. If you can't trust him for living life in the here and now, for teaching you and leading and guiding you in this life, you will never be able to trust him for the next one. So will you? 
Will you take Jesus at his word? Will you follow after Jesus? You know, and, and Paul told him to do this in three ways, right? He said, look, I want you to remember him. I want you to rehearse him. I want you to draw from him. And you have to trust him, Timothy. You have to trust him. Now, uh, just a couple things, and then we're going to land this plane. So, um, so you have a choice to make, right? You have a choice to make, and so, so do I. Now, maybe you think that you don't believe in Jesus enough yet, and that's, a, that's fair, because it's it's sometimes it's a, it's a process, right? But what I, what I want you to latch on to is that Jesus isn't waiting for you to submit your application to him. He's seeking you out. He, he isn't like the other rabbis. In fact, a rabbi's yoke was their interpretation of Scripture. What did Jesus say about his yoke? He said, come to me because my yoke is light. It's easy. It's not burdensome. You're never going to find a better yoke, a better interpretation of the Old Testament than mine. Because I'm God in the flesh. And I came to die for your sin to free you from that list of rules, regulations, do's, and don'ts. I came to bring you salvation by faith. You know, through grace. That's why he could say, my yoke, man, it's not like everybody else's. It's easy and it's light. So, maybe there's somebody here, and what you need to do in this moment is you need to say, maybe for the very first time in your life, all right, Jesus, from this day on, I want to be a follower of you. I'm asking you to be my rabbi. I'm asking you to be my teacher. And I want to make the number one goal of my life. And I want to come to know your word. And I want to come to know the Father as you know the Father. You know, I want you to be my rabbi. And I want to learn from you because I want to become just like you. Maybe some of us need to open up our hearts and our minds and have that conversation with Jesus for the very first time. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to call up our uh, praise team. And uh, one of the ways we celebrate and remember the grace of our Jesus, the forgiveness of our Jesus, is through something that we just call communion. And so we're going to continue to worship, and we're going to worship together by taking communion together. So you're going to notice there's a couple of tables up front. There's a couple of tables in the back. Uh, you can feel free to go back to come up. But we want to invite you to kind of come down these two aisles. We're going to serve you the bread and, and the cup. We want to ask you to take the bread and the cup back to your seat. Hold on to it. Then I'm going to come back up, and I'm going to prompt you. And we'll eat together, and then we'll drink, and we'll do that together as well. So, uh, so what I'd like to do is just pray for us, and then we'll worship uh, together through both communion and song. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you died not just for who we are, but for who and what we would become. So God, we ask you to take us, to mold our hearts, to shape our minds, to make us the kind of husbands and wives that you would want us to be, to make us the kind of um, 
children, the kind of parents that we long to be, the kind of co-workers, the kind of workers. Lord Jesus, we invite you to come and change us. We thank you for your body which was offered up on the cross. We thank you for your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. And so as we, as we eat from the bread and drink from the cup, we proclaim together, we, we want to remember. We want to remember. And we love you for it. And so we say it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.